So this morning is our second Sunday of Advent. This is a, a season that Christians around the world celebrate. And I, we're used to calling this the Christmas season, but uh, this is an Advent season. And I opened last week with a little introduction on what Advent is. Advent is, in Latin, Adventus, it simply means coming. And the celebration is the coming of the Savior. Um, but the Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of the Savior. The New Testament saints, we look forward to his coming too. And so we join in with the Old Testament saints in a longing for a Messiah to come yeah. and to wipe away our tears. Yeah. Amen. And during the Advent season, Advent is a beautiful thing because it has the ability to remove the false pieces of the season. All the false hopes and the false peace that is commercialized and packaged to you so you can make more purchases on your credit card. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, the world is still very much in a dark place. And there are people here this morning that even though it's Christmas season, they may not be feeling the joy of that season. And so Advent recognizes that Jesus Christ came, but when he came, it was a really dark time. And so this morning's our second Sunday in kind of reflecting and celebrating, if you will, um, the season of Advent. And really, it's a time where the church reflects on God's ultimate response to humanity's rebellion. And it's a response that meant, it's a response that met sin and selfishness with sacrifice and love. But instead of a time of worship, Advent has become kind of a time of warfare. And I don't know if you feel it or not, but, they, but again, um, um, among the shopping and the excitement, there is, underneath it all, there's a lot of warfare yeah. that's taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of a time of worship, Advent has become a time of warfare. And the warfare has put our families and our children are at the center of this warfare. I want you to kind of lean in and hear me a little bit, especially, um, well, even if you're not a parent, uh, but I, especially if you're a parent, I want you to kind of lean in a little bit. There's a warfare going on. And our children are at the center of it. And you're really at the center of this warfare as well. Um, a pastor by the name of Paul Tripp, he says this, he writes this. There is a war for which story will define our children's beliefs about who they are, what they need, and what their lives are about. The Advent season has become a battle between two stories. One seductive and attractive, but fundamentally untrue. And the other deeply humbling, but what every person everywhere needs. Let me say this again. There is a warfare. There is a war for which story will define our children's beliefs about who they are, what they need, and what their lives are about. And the Advent season has become a battle between two stories, two narratives. One story is seductive and attractive, but fundamentally untrue. While the other story is deeply humbling, but what every person everywhere needs. Amen? The false story tells our children that they're at the center. A place that's only reserved for God. It points them to creation rather than to the creator for fulfillment and makes the comfort of the moment more important than the priorities of eternity. 
it calls them, it beckons them to find comfort where comfort can't be found. To place their hope in places that don't deliver and to think that they can accomplish what only the Messiah accomplished. It calls them. It calls you. Can you hear it? The story beckons you to put your comfort in things that won't comfort you. To put your satisfaction in things that won't satisfy. And it compels you and it calls you. And it tells you that you can accomplish what only the Messiah could accomplish. The true story is a sad story. And perhaps that's why we battle. Because it's the attractive story that we want to, everyone wants to feel good. And it's a sad story that we don't want to, we don't want to kind of gel in with this sad story. We don't want to blend in with that sad story. But the true story is a sad story. It's a story about a world disconnected from peace. A world disconnected from the source of peace. It's a story about a world broken by sin. And get ready for this, because you're not going to like this, because this means you and I. And populated by self-centered rebels who would rather live for themselves in conflict than trust in God in peace. It's about conditions so desperate that God did the unthinkable. He sent his son to be the sacrificial lamb of redemption. And until our children know the bad news, the good news won't be attractive. And tell our children know the bad news, the good news won't be attractive to them. The news that on Christmas morning, Jesus came to live, die, and rise again in our place. Because he saved us and we can't save ourselves. This, this is the power of Advent. This is what Advent does. And so our Advent series, if you were here last week, it began with us introducing a story um, and we used the first couple of chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And if you were here, you'd remember we introduced the story of peace on earth. And we learned that peace was disconnected, that we live in a disconnected peace. And all you have to do is take a look at your homes. Maybe some of you are going through some relational strife. Maybe you're going through some family strife. The holidays is really a tough time, especially if you're not talking to that sister or that brother. You guys know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a tough season sometimes. You start people, your whole plans start changing. You don't go to that place no more. You stay there for only 15 minutes because so-and-so is going to be there. And we, it doesn't take long for us to realize that, wait a minute, Christ has promised peace on earth, but yet there is such a disconnected peace in my personal life, in my family. We talked about nationally. We're in a political unrest like we've never seen. Internationally, <laughs> in wars and rumors of wars. It doesn't feel very peaceful. And so we told the story about how peace was disconnected in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And how peace was disconnected when humanity began to rely on himself rather than on God. And if you remember in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we were told that the word of God transformed darkness into light and chaos into gardens. It's a beautiful story, a very poetic story. The creation story is really beautiful. If you read chapter 1 and 2, you see God speaking things into existence. And where there was darkness, he speaks and his word brings light. And where there was chaos, he speaks and gardens begin to grow. And so chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis are a really beautiful story and a picture of peace. But in chapter chapter 3, that picture of peace is exchanged for a picture of sin. You see, sin is introduced. And for the very first time in chapter 3 of Genesis, 
Three words are mentioned that were never mentioned before. Guilt, shame, and blame. Prior to the fall, there was no such thing as guilt, shame, and blame. And can you imagine a world that didn't live in guilt, shame, and blame? What a beautiful story. But as a result of man's sin, all of creation suffered the consequence of conflict. Yet, and we ended it last week, in the midst of pain, God still gave us a promise of peace. Amen. Yeah. So that's where this morning's journey is going to start off in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And uh, again, if you weren't here last week, you'll do perfectly fine this morning. Uh, but if you weren't, um, I would totally suggest go back to our podcast, check it out. I think it'll really add um, some meaning to um, this morning's message. But um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this particular portion of scripture is known as the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium. And what that simply means is the first announcement of the gospel is found in Genesis. And when this, the first pronounce of the gospel is when God speaks to the snake after mankind falls and he says this to the snake, listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, here it is. Here is the Evangelium right here. Here is the gospel. Here is the Christmas story. Here is Advent. God says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the hope of disconnected peace becoming reconnected peace is found in the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is fulfilled through the seed of the woman promised to come in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus Christ is that seed and he crushed the head of the serpent, while at the same time, his heel was bruised on the cross. And it's through this glorious gospel that God has given us a reason to hope against hope, to believe the unbelievable, Amen. that there can be peace. Yeah. Peace on earth. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Peace is possible. And I want to speak to anybody who maybe is suffering in a little warfare right now. I want to tell you, peace is possible. Yeah. Peace is possible. So my prayer, my prayer today has been twofold for the church. It's that we'd be empowered by the Holy Spirit to find inner peace. Yes. But that we'd also find hope for a future peace that feels unrealistic, but is very realistic. So that you would be empowered to find inner peace this morning. That you'd be encouraged to look forward to a day. When peace on earth is fully realized and finally realized. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your people who are here this morning. Lord, bless every hearer of the word. Lord, I pray that good seed will fall on good soil. Minister through me. I step out of the way. Let your words, not mine, let your will, not mine, be done in all of our hearts and all of our lives. Because we know that your word transforms and changes things. Amen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like I said earlier, the gospel reveals that Jesus is the subject of Genesis 3.15. He's the subject of the Proto-Evangelium. Jesus is the he of Genesis 3.15. And the gospel tells us that the peace Adam lost in the garden, Jesus recovered on the cross. And this morning, we're going to discuss reconnected peace, but we're going to break that down into three sections because reconnected peace comes in three different ways. Peace with God, 
peace with others, and finally peace within. So we're going to discuss reconnected peace. Last week we discussed disconnected peace. This morning we'll talk about how do we recover from what Adam did? How do we recover from our sin? How do we reconnect the peace that has been disconnected? First, peace with God, peace with others. And then finally we'll finish with peace within. So let's, let's talk about peace with God through reconciliation. Peace with God through reconciliation. If you have your Bibles... Let's go to Romans chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. We'll have it up here for you on the screen. But if you do, I would love for you to follow along. Romans chapter 5. And we're going to stay in this chapter. And we're going to kind of leapfrog some verses. But Romans chapter 5. And we're going to start off with verse 1. Start off with verse 1. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Scripture reads like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, stay there. We're going to come back to this. But I want you to hear this because this is really important. The bulk of our time this morning is going to be here discussing peace with God. Because when man is not at peace with God, he finds himself at conflict with everyone and everything around him. Now, Paul makes two very powerful points in this opening verse. The first point is this, and I'm going to reiterate what I just said. The road out of conflict this morning and the road out of conflict, period, and into peace starts with God. It starts with God. In fact, any effort, any effort to secure peace, whether it's inner peace or peace with someone around you, without first making peace with God is futile and short-lived. Now, sure, the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of this world may take your mind off of things momentarily. But they always overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah. Yeah. Mankind has realized, even though at times we may be stubborn to admit, we need something more potent than alcohol. We need something more satisfying than pornography and more reliable than another broken human being to erase shame and guilt. Wow, we need something more satisfying than pornography. We need something stronger than alcohol. And we need something in someone more reliable than a broken human being. You know, do you guys know this? That uh, we talk a lot sometimes about our dependencies, our codependencies, our dependencies on substance, right? To help us get through our issues. For some, it could be alcohol, it could be prescription, it could be marijuana. There are so many different things that are out there. There are other things I don't have time to list, but are all these false pieces. And they offer you momentary releases. They offer you momentary times of peace. But when it's done and that moment leaves, you're still feeling, you're still feeling the same. My earpiece is hanging, so I'm going to switch here. I was Janet Jackson this morning, but now I'm going back to... Amen. 
right when I'm getting in there, right? And we talk a lot about codependencies, right? We talk about being dependent upon a substance just to get through the day. Just to get through. I want you to know, God didn't, God didn't create you to have to depend on things. You know, when you were put in the garden, you were meant to have dominion over things, but sin causes things to have dominion over you. And before you know what you thought you were in control of controls you. And there are things that you used to do. They said, I can stop. And then you no longer can stop. And you realize, wait a minute, I'm not in control. This is controlling me. Man was never intended for things to have dominion over him. He was always intended to have dominion over things. You are not meant to bow down to substances. But you know, a lot of times it's, we talk so much about substances, but we talk about, you know, another human being is a substance. Some of us, our codependencies is on our relationships and people. And we are unhealthy. We are, we are tied or connected together in a very unhealthy way to the point where we allow someone else's mood to determine our emotions. And we end up in a really weird cycle. The unhealthy relational cycle. And again, I'm not trying to be a psychologist this morning. I'm just trying to let you know that disconnected peace and sin causes you to look outside of God for that place of peace. There's a second important factor that I want to bring before we go forward. Peace with God is only attained in Jesus Christ. Yeah. No Amen. other way. Amen. No other way. Yeah. You can try, but you, you won't find it. The only way to peace is through God. And the only way to peace with God is through Christ. It's the blood of Jesus. I love this. The blood of Jesus is the ink that signed the peace treaty with God. And the key word that Paul uses in verse 1 is the word justification. And this word is not just theological. This is a beautiful word. Justification. Paul says this, our faith in Jesus justifies us. Let me just tell you how beautiful the word justification is. Justification implies objective legal standing for the Christian. Justification implies the objective legal standing for a Christian. What do I mean by that? The moment we repent and believe the gospel, we are instantaneously justified and declared righteous in the eyes of God once and for all. The moment you repent and believe, the righteousness of Christ is given to you. And it doesn't matter what you did five minutes ago or what you'll do two days from now. You are not guilty. I don't know about you, but that makes me happy. Past, present, and future, not guilty. Well, what about my past? Not guilty. What about what I just did? Not guilty. What about what I'm going to do? Not guilty. Because the Lord God does not see you. He sees his son, and his son was perfect. You are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Beautiful word. Romans 1. Let's skip down Romans 5. Let's skip to verse 10 and 11. I love this. Verse 10 and 11 says this. For if while we were enemies. For if we were enemies. If while we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick pointers here. First one, again, in Genesis, Adam's sin was the great disconnector. 
But in Romans, Jesus' obedience is the great reconnector. This is what the word reconciliation is implying. The work of Christ on the cross has saved us from the wrath of God and changed our status from enemies to friends. Isn't that crazy? Some of y'all be changing your relational status all the time on Facebook. Right? And some of you don't change it at all because you know if you change the status, you know what that means. So I know some people will date for like six, seven, eight months. The status still hasn't changed. And everyone's just waiting, right? What are you waiting on? Why are you scared? Some of you don't know what Facebook is. I totally understand. But I, this always have, this is a big thing in dating. This Now, now if the Facebook is ch- status has changed. And what I love about Jesus Christ is his blood on the cross plus your repentance and belief means that your status has changed. And you go from enemies and haters of God to lovers and friends of God. Those who have been justified by faith now have an unshakable hope. You know what that unshakable hope is? This, that on the day of judgment, you're not going to be put to shame. If you've said yes to Christ, if you've repented of your sins and you believed in the death resurrection of Christ, you no longer have anything to fear. On judgment day, you will not be put to shame. Um, So let me explain this. A lot of times in churches, there's a little bit of fear that's preached sometimes, right? Don't do that. Because if Jesus comes back while you're doing that, those of the children in here, you're born and raised in church. No doubt that's been told to you. No doubt that you have been doing something in the back of your mind. You thought, what if he comes right now? Right? There's some fear there. It's a little fear factor. I remember one time, I don't want to tell any personal stories actually, but. Tell it, Philip. It's about you, mom. So, how did I say this politely? Once upon a time, long, long time ago, movies were really a bad thing. Now, some of you have some personal convictions in here, and I do not want to put personal convictions down. Amen? Amen. Right? So, if you have a personal conviction, you don't go to movies, totally okay. Just don't put down other Christians that do, because then it will become legalism. You don't want to do that. Got it? Yeah. So for a while there, there was a big movement. Going to movies and dancing, man, that, all of that was like the devil, right? Now dancing's okay, but you just got to keep your hips in a box, right? It, so, it, you know, draw the imaginary box, and if the hips go outside of it, you're in sin. You know what I'm saying? Guys, too, so don't even try. All right. Back to the story. I remember sneaking out to the movies. And just being petrified in the movie theater. Like, man, if Jesus comes back right now. I'm watching Will Smith. I, the first movie, Independence Day. I think I was like 16. I was like, my parents, where are they at? Where's the, right? And so uh, I just, I remember just having that fear. And I don't, my parents didn't necessarily raise me in that particular fear. But that was just how we were all taught growing up. Again, I go to movies all the time now. So I just pray I'm okay when the Lord comes. But here, let me tell you what justification in Christ means if you've repented and believed that fear should no longer exist inside of you you now have an unshakable hope that on the day of judgment you will not be put to shame 
We who have placed our faith in Jesus no longer live under the fear of God's wrath because Christ's blood has secured peace with our Father. We're at peace with God. We are no longer at war with Him because we received His Son into our hearts. Now, if you continue to verse 12, and we'll read 12 through 14, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. It's a little deep. So let me break that particular, those two verses down. Let me break those down into three phrases, three major phrases that have three major theological implications. When you hear theology, don't think, okay, I'm going to turn that off. That's only for the studious people. Beautiful implications of theology that will impact your life if you'll just, if you'll just become a learner. Three phrases. The first one is sin through one man. The second phrase is death through sin. And finally, the last phrase will be Adam who was a type. So let me teach you a little theology regarding those three phrases. The first one is this, sin through one man. Hear me out, because this is important. Tucked into verse 12 is a doctrine that the church cannot afford to miss. In fact, if we miss this, we miss conversion. And we preach this whole thing wrong. I want you to see this. Adam wasn't just a bad example for us to learn from. Adam wasn't just a bad example for us to learn from in Genesis 3. But according to Romans 5, Adam was our representative. So what does this mean? Adam's sin was our sin. His guilt is our guilt. When Adam fell, all of humanity fell with him. In Adam, we all sinned. You and I are not falling. We are falling. I think I'm going to get down a little closer to everybody. This is huge. This is important. Sometimes we look at Genesis 3 and we look at Adam as an example, a bad example. And we look at Adam tempted. And we look at how the temptation affected Adam. And we look at Adam and we begin to say, okay, those are the do's and don'ts of sin and temptation. Now, there is something to learn from that. But if you stop there, your doctrine of salvation and conversion gets really muddied up. Because Adam is not just a bad example, but he's our representative. What does that mean? That means that the moment Adam chose incorrectly in sin, his sin became your sin. We all sinned in Adam. So this thing ain't about works. It's not about how many sins did we do yesterday and how many sins are we going to do today and one day we're going to be better than this and that. You are already sinful. The moment you were born, you were born into sin. Adam's sin is your sin. Wow. Are you with me on that? And when we have a correct understanding of the doctrine of sartoriology, salvation, we have a correct, when we have a correct doctrine of the depravity of man, of our sin nature, not that we become worse as we go. We were born bad. We were born into sin. When we begin to understand that, when a church begins to realize that, it's a beautiful thing because we then begin to glorify Christ and dethrone ourselves because you can't bring salvation. You can't do it. Are you with me? 
if we miss this, we're bound to overestimate our goodness and underestimate God's grace. Good. You with me? And we're bound to preach things incorrectly. And we're bound to miss the whole idea of conversion. We're bound to miss the beauty of Christ and his atonement. You know, I know a lot of people, it's like, man, just love Jesus. Just get closer to Jesus. That's all you need to do. Anybody ever gave you that advice? Well, what do I, just get closer to Jesus. Just love him. And you're thinking, yourself, well, what does that mean? I just sit in his presence, turn some music on and bask in him and just love him. That's all you need to do. I want you to know this, that when you are deprived of the word of God, it's hard to love Christ more. Yeah. Yeah. You can sit and meditate all you want. But when you begin to understand the doctrines of the Lord, you begin to say his word. When you begin to understand salvation, the love of Christ wells up even more. I am not saying I love to sit and meditate in his presence. It's part of what we do. But that combined with the word of God equals the beauty of Christ. The more I realize who Jesus is and how powerful his atonement is and how less I am and what he did for me, my adoration and my worship increases and rises. It's from a right theology that my worship becomes right. Yeah. And it begins to rise up inside me because I see the beauty of Christ in all of creation. Wow, yeah. Beautiful. Mm. Beautiful. Sin through one man. Number two, death through sin. I think I said I love this like three times in this message, but I love this part as well. Secular thought views death as a natural part of human life. Right? Death is natural, you'll hear, commonly. It's a natural part of life. Secular thought views death as a natural part of human life. But the scriptures view death as an enemy of the saints. Yeah. Do you know that? Scripture views death as an enemy. In Genesis, if you think back, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, man lived in peace in the garden, and death did not exist. Death was never part of God's plan. It's only after the fall in chapter 3 that death is introduced into the world as a consequence of sin. Now, here's a comforting thought. You ready to be comforted? Death is not natural. Think about that. Death is not natural. Nor was it ever intended to be natural. But instead, according to the word of God, death is the last enemy. That will be conquered by Christ once he returns. Death is not natural. Death is the last enemy that will be conquered when Christ returns. Finally, number three, Adam, who was a type. Adam, who was a type. What do I mean? What does scripture mean? What does Paul mean when he says Adam, who was a type? Listen, because Jesus succeeded where Adam failed and finished what Adam started, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam. He's the last Adam. <clears throat> I want you to see the parallels. In Genesis, on a tree, Eve and Adam are both tempted into sin. Right? Yeah. In Genesis, on a tree, Eve and Adam are tempted in this, on a, on a um, tree in a garden. Are you with me? Eve and Adam in a garden are tempted by, the, by Satan on a tree in a garden. And when they pick of it, they disobey God, they eat of the fruit, and they sin. Fast forward to the life of Christ, right? Christ, after he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness, and Satan tempts him in the wilderness. You know that? Do you know that Jesus was tempted, yes. but he did not sin? Yes. 
He was tempted in every way, but he did not sin. And did you know that the same three temptations in the wilderness were the same three temptations that Adam and Eve wow. were in the garden, had to, uh, Adam and Eve were up against in the garden. Wow. So if you, if you read Genesis chapter three, you'll see that Eve looks at the snake. The snake says, this will make you like God, right? So there's a pride in there, right? And she noticed that the tree, she saw with her eyes that the tree was good. And so there's, there's an eye temptation. And then she also thought that it was not only good, but it was good for to eat, right? And so there's these three temptations that are here that Jesus will face in the wilderness and that Paul will write about in the New Testament, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Pride, eyes, flesh. Are you guys with me? Yeah. So where Adam and Eve fail in the Old Testament, Jesus will come and succeed in the New Testament. A lot of people will say that he conquered Satan on the cross, and that's true. But he was conquering Satan the minute he went into the wilderness and said no to what you and I can't say no to. Yeah, yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. Now, here's a more amazing thing is Jesus, at the end of his ministry, is in a garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. You guys familiar yeah. with that? And he's praying and agonizing in prayer, and, he's, and the cross is before him. Yeah. And the cross represents obedience. God says, I, you are going to obey me. You're going to go to the cross. But the cross also means sacrifice. Yeah. Nobody wants sacrifice. There's a wrestle going on even inside of Christ. Yeah. And it's a beautiful story in John of Christ. You can see him. He's agonizing in his prayer, right? And in that prayer, he says, if this cup could pass from me, uh-huh. if, you, if this cup could be taken away from me, if this thing could be, if I could do this some other way, um, but nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Your will is more important than my will. And again, there's all kinds of theological debates in there on what Jesus was talking about. But here's the idea. He says, nevertheless, your will is for me to go to the cross, Father. And because your will is for me to go to the cross, I'm going to go to the cross. Again, in a garden, on a tree, where Adam failed in a garden, going to a tree, the cross, Jesus Christ succeeded. Yeah. Jesus, therefore, Adam, therefore, is a type of Jesus. The Old Testament is full of types. These are, these are foreshadowings. These are characters that are looking ahead to Jesus. They're all declaring who Jesus is. But the problem is, is all of the types are failures. All of the types are shadows. And the issue is, is if you and I find comfort in the shadow, we'll be let down. The shadow points to something greater. The sign points to something greater. The miracle points to something greater. And man has a tendency to look at the miracle, but not look at the Savior. And the types were pointing to Jesus. They were pointing to you. Because every time you were a type, you failed. But Jesus is the perfection of those types. And so when Paul calls Adam a type, he's saying that Adam, the first man, Adam, was a failure in his disobedience in the garden on a tree. But the last man, Jesus Christ, will succeed in obedience in the garden. And then he'll go crucified on a tree. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. And really, what's really beautiful is through the last Adam, well, let's, let's talk about through the first Adam. Through the first Adam, many will be made sinners. Wasn't really fair, was it? <laughs> through the first Adam, many will be made sinners. Many will die. And at death, many will face judgment and condemnation. But through the last Adam, Many will be justified, many will be made righteous, and many will live without fear of judgment and condemnation. Wow. This, is, this is what it means to be born again. 
You ever heard that term? Jesus says in uh, the Gospel of John to Nicodemus, you want to enter into the kingdom, you must be born again. Nicodemus like, I don't get that. I have you be born again. It just feels all weird to do that all over again. Well, this is what Jesus was saying. Once we entered into this world as a baby, we were born into death under the first Adam. But when we repent and believe, we experience a spiritual rebirth. And now we are born into life and we are born under the last Adam. There's an exchange of representation that takes place. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you step out of the old Adam and you step under the new Adam. And the old Adam that used to reign and govern you no longer reigns and governs you, but you begin to exchange government and you step out of the government of the first Adam and under the government of the last Adam. Are you with me? Okay. And that's a rebirth. It's a rebirth. And so as we continue in Romans chapter 10, or chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it puts it like this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Are you with me? Peace with God through reconciliation by faith in Jesus Christ is the root of all peace. Get peace right there first and then peace will flow everywhere else. When we find peace with God, we'll then begin to find peace with others through unity. And I want to look at that right now. Peace with God through reconciliation and now peace with others through unity. If you could open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 13 through 17. I recognize I'm teaching a little bit today. So just hopefully you let this kind of sit in, saturate inside of you. I really, um, we, theology is a really important part of what we do here in communicating the gospel rightly. And so Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 17, we talked about peace with God through reconciliation. Now we'll talk about peace with others through unity. Verse 13 reads like this, Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 17 reads like this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What is Paul saying? Let's start off real simple. All conflict is the result of sin. Whether it's political Racial, whether it's conflict in the family, conflict personally, sin always divides and sin always separates. This is one of the greatest works of God. This is why one of the greatest works of God is the reconciling of sinners to himself and sinners to one another through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, let's break these verses down just a little bit. Under the law... Because of the first Adam, humanity was divided into two classifications. Stay with me. Under the law, 
Because of the first Adam, humanity was divided into two classifications, Jews and Gentiles, basically Jews and everyone else. And if you think about it, it was the haves and the have nots. In the Old Testament, the Jews were the only nation that received the covenant of God. They received the promises of God, the covenant of God. They received the commandments. And if you read the whole Old Testament from Genesis 5 all the way on, God is focusing on one group of people, one family line. And he's, he's focusing on them. You ask, well, how come the Bible doesn't have a bunch of... Why is the Bible always focused on one people group? Because he's focusing on this one people group because through this people group will come a woman. And from that woman will come a baby. And that baby will be the Messiah. And that Messiah will not just bless the Jews, but he'll bless the entire world. So in the Old Testament, we will focus on one group that receives everything. The haves and the have-nots. But when Christ came and he was born, he died, he resurrected, he died for all men. And so he separate, he, he actually, um, he doesn't separate, he brings together what was separated. Wow. Are you with me? Yeah. Under the law, because of the first Adam, humanity was divided into two classifications, Jews and Gentiles. Now, under the new covenant, because of the last Adam, that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. You guys with me? Yeah. The blood of Jesus has not only satisfied the wrath of God, but it has also replaced hostility with peace and separation with unity within mankind. And even though at times we may not do a great job of this, amen? The church, let me repeat, the church, the church. And even though at times, even though we may not do such a good job at this, the church has now become a living testimony to the world yeah. of those who once lived in hostility towards one another now live at peace together in the body of Christ. Yeah. Hear me out. How the church relates to one another, how the church gets along with one another, uh -oh, displays the power of the work of the cross. Wow. What a challenge. Now, if you're not familiar with church or you're not a church goer, you can just listen and kind of laugh and kind of understand how we do it. If you go to church, you need to take this as a challenge. If you're a member of the body of Christ, how the church handles conflict will either glorify God or misrepresent him. Isn't that a challenge? If you're honest with yourself, it's a challenge. Let's put this into perspective. Let's put this into two pictures for you. The first picture is this. I want you to see this. The world equals the old creation under the first Adam featuring the old man in conflict. The world equals the old creation under the first Adam featuring the old man in conflict. The church equals the new creation under the last Adam featuring the new man in peace. You guys see that? Yeah. The world equals the old creation under the first Adam, featuring the old man in conflict. The church equals the new creation under the last Adam, featuring the new man in peace. Now, now that I painted this picture theologically, what does reconciled relationships, unified relationships in the body of Christ look like practically? Three questions that I want every believer in here to ask yourself. The first question is this, am I building relationships 
or walls with unbelievers? Am I building relationships or walls with unbelievers for the purpose of testifying about the peace of Jesus? Are you building relationships or walls? Is your witness testifying to peace? Is your witness glorifying Christ to the unbeliever? Are you building relationships or walls with the unbeliever? Number two, am I cultivating discipleship relationships with other believers from all walks of life demonstrating the beauty of the gospel in my church? Am I cultivating relational discipleship with other believers in my church, friendships and relationships in my church with people that don't look like me, sound like me, like the things that I like? Am I being the body of Christ? Am I cultivating peace, not just with the non-believer, but also with the believer? There are some people that love the non-believer. Then you come to church and you don't like the believer. Man, some of you are like, well, I don't go to church. Why? Because there's believers there. Like, I love Jesus, but I just find that the sinners are a lot more friendlier. (laughs) I've heard some people say this before. I've heard some people say, well, I'd rather be in the world than be in the church. Number one, I think that's an excuse. You'd rather hold on to your sin. I think that's really what it is. But number two is there are some churches that really don't show the love of Jesus. In fact, all of us at times don't. We're very imperfect people. We're not going to be perfect. But the church is supposed to be a display of imperfection coming in and conflicting but always forgiving. Wow. You with me? This leads us to number three. Number three is super important. Am I becoming a more forgiving person now that I'm in Christ? Am I becoming a more forgiving person in every relational dynamic of my life? Let me ask you something. Since you have said yes to Jesus, those of you who have been walking with the Lord, are you becoming more forgiving? Are you growing in that area? Can you forgive someone when they've offended you? Do you, do you offend easily? Or do you ignore people? Do you go in on Sunday morning and don't walk a certain way because you're in an argument with that brother? I want to let you know that's not what the last Adam died for. Wow. Wow. We need to become a church that displays forgiveness and yeah. reconciliation yeah. first in the house so that out, people outside the house can look in the house and be like, wow, there's something different about that place. Wow. Yeah. There's something special about that place. They still fight, but they come back together in a way that I've never seen before. Am I becoming a more forgiving person in every relational dynamic of my life? I want you to hear this. Forgiveness is the glue of the gospel, and it's the glue of the church. Forgiveness is the glue of the church. So we've covered peace with God through reconciliation. Peace with others through unity. But I want to conclude this morning's message by talking about peace within. Amen? We've talked about peace with God through reconciliation. Peace with others through unity. But I want to throw a curveball at you. You ready for this? I want to talk about peace within through warfare. Peace within through warfare. Now, I know this sounds contradictory. But even though the gospel has announced peace... It's undeniable that we are all still engaged in spiritual warfare. And I find it ironic 
that in a particular section of scripture that is describing a spiritual battle, weapons of armor and a battle of the saints, I find it ironic that in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15, in a place where it's talking about warfare, the Apostle Paul tells us to not forget to put on your shoes. He goes through all the armor and he says, don't forget to cover your feet. It's like, okay, I got it. I'm not going to go into war without shoes. He says, don't forget to put on your shoes. He says, don't forget to put the shoes on your feet. And you get, are you ready? He describes the shoes as this. In spiritual warfare, here are the shoes. The shoes are this. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. In a section dedicated to warfare, Paul reminds us to put on peace. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What does that mean? How do we explain war and peace in our faith? Because everybody here knows that there's warfare going on. How do you explain war and peace in our faith? Now, I want you to hear this. There's a famous theory that many of you are probably familiar with. It's called the just war theory. And let me tell you what the just war theory is. This theory suggests that sometimes we must go to war in order to secure peace. It's called the just war theory. Sometimes we must go to war in order to secure peace. I want you to know that the gospel is the reverse of this theory. The gospel is the reverse in that peace has already been secured so that we can now do battle in the greatest war of all, the war against sin, Satan, death, and hell. Let me explain. In the first Adam, we were at peace with sin and at war with God, a war that we could not win. In the last Adam, we are at peace with God and at war with sin, a battle that we most certainly will win. This is powerful. The gospel is the gospel is an announcement of peace with God. And that announcement of peace with God becomes one of our most fundamental weapons in our war against sin. The only way a Christian can successfully engage in this kind of a battle is if they are assured that the war is already over. Our great weapon against the flesh, our great weapon in the battle of sin, is our cross-bought peace. Any struggle outside of the gospel is a certain defeat. But any struggle inside of the gospel is a guaranteed victory. It's the gospel that opens our eyes to sin. And compels us to wage war against it. It's also the gospel that opens our eyes to peace with Christ. And that he's secured it on our behalf. This is why Paul tells Timothy, fight a fight, but it's a good fight. He says, fight the good fight of faith. I want you to, I'm going to finish here. I want you guys to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. And if you do have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go there with me. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I want you to listen to these powerful words written by the Apostle Paul. And as I read, can you allow the word of God just to speak to you? It reads like this. Paul writing says, for I know 
that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. And then he asks the question, who can deliver me from this body of death? Wow. This is Paul, guys. This isn't just like somebody around the corner who's struggling with sin. This is an apostle that we all look up to and find to be, oh my gosh, he's you know, walking in this higher level of quote-unquote spirituality. And he's saying to us, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And inside of me, I see this war that's waging on. Even though when I want to do right, evil is close by. Paul says to himself, looking in the mirror probably, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Can I tell you something? The Old Testament finishes right there with that question. Everything Paul just said is what the Old Testament was about. The Old Testament, the laws and the prophets were all put in place so that you and I can see that we are sinners and that we can't save ourselves. And that's where the Old Testament ends. You ever watch a really good movie and then your favorite character at the end kind of dies? And you're kind of like, that was terrible. And no matter how beautiful the movie was or how much you loved it, your favorite character got messed up and then there was no correction of it. Like it barely happens because most of the time when we see movies, there's always a happy ending. Something great always happens. But you ever come across a movie where you really enjoyed it and you, you already know the ending's going to be great and it left you hanging and it was a terrible ending and your favorite character didn't get what they wanted. Somebody died, never came back. You ever been left like that? That's what the Old Testament does. It's a beautiful movie. It's a crazy movie. It tells you that you're a sinner. It tells you that you're messed up. And then it tells you, and you can't do nothing about it. Wow. <laughs> what? Can't do nothing about it. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't stop there. And the New Testament doesn't stop there. But the New Testament springs forth in the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke makes an announcement, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And Paul says, who can deliver me from this body of death? And here's the answer. He says, but thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am so thankful. I am so thankful. I am so thankful that our faith didn't stop there. I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ came and did everything you and I can't do. And all we have to do is put our faith in him and repent and believe in the gospel. And he will come and justify you immediately. And you'll be at peace with God. And then he'll begin to cultivate inside of you a peace within, through war with sin, and a peace with others. Let's pray. Before we pray, you guys, you guys could just be in a place of reflection um, just for a moment.
couple things I want you to reflect on. And again, we're finished here. A um, couple things I want you to reflect on just while you're there. Um, number, the first thing I want you to think about is stop trusting in yourself. You know, you, you, may have, you may have heard the old saying, you put things in your hands. I'll, I'll take this into my own hands. And many of us have learned over and over again, unfortunately, through life, that when we put things in our own hands, we actually mess it all up. And so I would ask if you would consider maybe exchanging your trust, taking it out of the first Adam and putting it into the last Adam. Because everyone who's under the first Adam can't be trusted anyway. Secondly, maybe there's some person, some people in here, you're a Christian, but you handle conflict immaturely. Maybe you're still battling in the flesh. You get offended really easily still. Uh, maybe um, it's, you, you feel rejected quickly. You get very defensive. There's a sensitivity about you. And it causes you sometimes to be in joy with your fellow believers, but then it also causes rifts. It causes separations and it causes conflicts. Um, I, I, I just, if you're there, you're sitting there, I just, I just want to encourage you, you know, that God is calling you into maturity. God's calling you into a deeper place so that you can testify to the peace within the body of Christ. And then finally, I, I want to talk to you. If there's anybody in here today, you just feel like you're engaged in some heavy warfare and you feel like sin has been you and sin and you and the flesh and you just feel like I am constantly failing. I'm constantly in failure that I almost feel like I'm not even saved. I feel like I don't have salvation with God. I want to speak peace to you right now. Yes. And I want to de-weaponize sin and weaponize the peace that was bought on the cross. Yes, Your best weapon against sin is to know that if you repented and believed in Christ, yeah. that you are justified. Thank you, God. And it's not your works, but it's his. Yeah. Don't stop battling sin, but this time begin to battle sin with peace with God. Begin to battle sin with the weapon of peace, knowing that it's been secured for you. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing that it's been secured Thank for you. We're going to pray and dismiss here. But I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. And we kind of skipped over it. But I want to end this morning. Romans chapter 5 verses 4 and 5. He says this. We rejoice in suffering. We rejoice in suffering. Christians rejoice in suffering. Not because we're morbid people. Not because we love to just beat, our, beat ourselves up. But a Christian unusually rejoices in suffering. And why do we rejoice in suffering? Because suffering becomes a, a pipeline to something greater. Yeah. In the hand of Jesus, suffering becomes a tool. In the hand of Satan, suffering becomes a weapon. Wow. And he says this, I rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance. Yeah. And he says, endurance produces character. And then he says, character produces hope. And hope the hope is, is that I won't be put to shame. I won't be put to shame. And so this morning, let's take our sufferings and instead of allowing the enemy to weaponize it and hurt us, let's give it to God and allow him to use it, not as a weapon to hurt, but as a tool to heal, as a tool for hope. Amen. Thank you, God. So Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning.
I thank you that it is Christmas season and we love everything about the beauty of Christmas. But we refuse to enter into the false story of Christmas. We entered this morning into the humble story of Christmas. The story that says, I am wretched. The story says that, you know what? I, we've all lost peace. We enter into, into that very sad, humble story, but we anticipate and celebrate the coming of the Messiah who accomplished everything that I couldn't accomplish and has reconnected peace with God. And I pray if there's anyone in here today that feels like they're far from God, you feel like you've been at warfare with God and his word this morning. I want to pray for you. If you feel like your lifestyle has been warring with God and that war is taking a toll and you have anxiety and you, now you're just looking for comforts just to forget. I want to tell you that that's not the road that you want to go on. I want to tell you that if that's you, don't listen to the weapon of the enemy. The enemy wants to... The enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And so I pray for every mind in this room that's in warfare with God. Make peace with him. God, I know my decision-making has been at warfare with you. I know the sin in my life. It's been, I, feel, I'm at, I, feel, I feel uneasy. I feel dark sometimes. But I, most, the thing that I want most is peace with you. Peace with you. So right now, I just pray for everyone here that's at warfare that you would repent and believe in the gospel. I repent from every selfish behavior. And I put my trust in Jesus Christ. Knowing that what the first Adam, along with myself, could not do, he has done. Come on, if you would just do that right now, you'd be justified immediately. Immediately. Father, I just thank you for this room. I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing in this season. Lord, you're birthing new things. Lord, you're pulling out old things. There's a, this is a healing season and a hurting season. And it's just glorious because you're at work. And I pray that we put our faith in you. We put our trust in you. We put our hope in you. And that we would know that the suffering of the moment is producing something. And may we not focus on the suffering, but may we focus on what it is that it's producing. I thank you for your glorious gospel Lord, that we can walk out of here knowing that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I bless your name. I bless this church and I bless everyone here today, every family represented here for your honor and your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. We're going to be talking about false peace next week. It's going to be a really amazing time. We invite you to come back next Sunday. We love y'all. And we'll Christmas care on Friday.